From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Patricia Murphy. Today, in an exclusive interview with the AJC. What we are focused on is the fact that 70% of Americans don't want a Trump-Biden rematch. Nikki Haley said she's staying in the race for president no matter what happens in her home state of South Carolina this weekend, and she laid out her path to Georgia's March 12th primary contest. We'll play our interview. I'm Greg Bluestein in Greenville, South Carolina. I'll have a report on what's happening on the ground as the Palmetto State's Republican presidential primary approaches on Saturday. I'm Tia Mitchell. Sanford Bishop has been a member of the U.S. House from Southwest Georgia for over 30 years. He'll join us live. I'm Bill Nygut. He lost to Marjorie Taylor Greene despite spending some $16 million in 2022. But now Democrat Marcus Flowers is taking on longtime incumbent David Scott. We'll ask him why he's in the race. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. I'm Patricia Murphy here in the studio with Bill Nygut, Tia Mitchell, down from Washington, and Greg Bluestein, who is joining us from South Carolina. Greg, you and I were up in North Augusta, South Carolina, yesterday. And that, you know what, that's a nice town. It is a nice town. It's weird saying North Augusta, South Carolina as well. <laughs> North and South <laughs> in one sentence. But no, we really enjoyed our, our short visit there. And I'm, I'm now in Greenville, and you've already gone back to Atlanta. Yes, I already w- made my way home. So North Augusta, Bill, is you know right across the Savannah River from regular Augusta, from Augusta, <laughs> Georgia. Um, it's a bedroom community of Augusta, but it really has its own South Carolina flavor. I really enjoyed it. But Nikki Haley was there yesterday yeah, um, campaigning in her home state. She's got a couple of days left to try and make her case. Yeah, and don't bury the lead. You spent time talking to her and got some really good quotes out of her. Yes, it's true. It's true. So <laughs> right now we're just going to head straight to that audio. Yesterday, as Bill said, the um, AJC talked to Nikki Haley in an exclusive inter- interview <laughs> as she enters the final days of the GOP primary there. Polls show she's highly unlikely to win her home state, but she told me she's not bowing out of the race and that she wants to bring her campaign here to Georgia for our March 12th primary. Here is that conversation. Ambassador Nikki Haley, thank you for joining us here in North Augusta. Um, It's wonderful to see you. We heard you yesterday say you're not going anywhere. You're in it through at least Super Tuesday. How about Georgia? Georgia votes on March 12th. Can we see you there as well? I mean, we hope so. I mean, the whole thing is to continue to try and be as competitive as we can, whether it's South Carolina or Michigan or Super Tuesday states and beyond. What we are focused on is the fact that 70% of Americans don't want a Trump-Biden rematch. You look at that, they are the two most disliked politicians in America. So why can we let that be our only two options? We want to make sure that we get somebody who can put in eight years that's a younger generation conservative that can go in there and really start to get the country back on track. People want to see that. We're going to continue to fight. All right. We saw you in Georgia a lot in 2022 campaigning for Governor Brian Kemp. Yes. He has not returned the favor yet. Um, is it How frustrating is it for people like Governor Kemp and other Georgians who have been in well-publicized feuds with the president not to be 
supporting you at this point when you supported them? Well, I really respect Governor Kemp. He ran a fantastic race. He has governed very well. He is a friend, and I appreciate his leadership. And he will make whatever decision is best for him. Um, he is still a friend. We're going to continue to support him in everything that he does. Um, so we'll just wait and see what he does. All right. The voters we talked to in Georgia pretty well know the differences between you and President Trump, but how would their lives be different, their daily lives, if they woke up with a President Haley instead of a President Trump? The tone at the top matters. And right now, everything Donald Trump touches is chaos. And so imagine a country where we didn't have the division. Imagine a country where we didn't have the hate. Imagine the country where we could sit down to dinner and and talk to our families about politics and not worry about things. The problem with Joe Biden is what's normal for him is you've got illegal immigrants coming across the border and them not stopping them. You've got the fact that they focus more on gender pronouns than they do about reading and math. We've got wars around the world. None of that's normal. And the problem with Donald Trump is here he mocks military members. He goes and and trusts and focuses more on Putin than he does on our allies who defended us after 9-11. He threatens my supporters saying that he's not going to bar them permanently from MAGA. None of that is normal. And what we're saying is if you've got Donald Trump calling his, you know, people who don't support him as vermin and you've got Joe Biden calling the people who don't support him as fascists, that's not the country we want to be in. We're Americans. And at some point, we've got enough issues going on that we don't need to go and have this about their two egos. We need to make it about the American people. All right. In your conversation with Martha McCallum on Fox News yesterday, you didn't seem to close the door on a third party run. She asked you if you would uh, be open to that. And I didn't hear a clear answer in there. Are you willing to consider a third party run because you do know that 70 percent of americans would rather not vote for trump or biden it's nothing i've thought about it's we haven't talked to anyone about that that's not anything that's been on our focus right now we're just focused on the republican primary and being as competitive as we possibly can would you leave the door open to that it's just not something i'm thinking about you know right now my focus is south carolina and then michigan and super tuesday we're not looking at any other routes at this point all right on the um prosecutions of President Trump. We've got one going on in Fulton County. And we've heard you say that voters deserve to know how those prosecutions are going to turn out to let them go forward. Does the news about Fonnie Willis having a relationship with her special prosecutor, do you feel like that can continue to go forward? Is that a prosecution you would like to still see move on and um, potentially get a result for voters? I mean, not with her in it. It's too chaotic. It's too much of a distraction. I mean, that's the problem is we've got chaos all around us. We don't need any more chaos. And so, look, he's got three judgments against him already. He's going to be in court March, April, May, and June. He said he's going to spend more time in a courtroom than he is going to be on the campaign trail. That's a problem. But look at the chaos that goes with these court cases. It's a problem. That's not what the American people want. All right. You'd like to see Fannie Willis off of that case? I think she needs to be off the case. I think they need to do what they're going to do without any more distractions. Okay. My last question for you. Yesterday, we saw you talking about your husband and children, and you got emotional. Um, What was going through your mind when you started to well up? We have not seen that from you before. Well, I think it's something that every military spouse goes through. You know, we are incredibly proud of our loved ones that go and serve. 
Um, but it's hard. He's like my right arm. I've, you know, running for president without him has, has not been the easiest. And, and I worry about him. You know, I worry about him when I wake up in the morning. I worry about him when I go to bed. And, you know, the kids worry about him. And it's something that every military family goes through. But we are incredibly grateful that he and so many of our men and women in the military are willing to sacrifice and willing to serve for the country that we all love. Okay, a quick last follow-up. Um, because President Trump has insinuated that he's missing and not overseas, deployed. Is President Trump still somebody you could support as the nominee? I mean, if you mock, it's not personal for me and Michael. We can handle politics as part of that. You're opening up yourself to everything. But you mock one member of the military, you're mocking every member of the military. And while we could overlook it in the beginning, now it's just a pattern from him saying that military members who sacrifice their lives are losers or suckers, or saying at Arlington National Cemetery that, you know, what was in it for them. He just doesn't understand the sacrifice military families go through. And so, look, it's a gut punch to every military family. I get my backup when you go and you say anything to them. Um, If he doesn't understand their sacrifice and their service, it means he doesn't understand America. Can you support him if he were the nominee? I have serious concerns about Donald Trump. I have more serious concerns about Joe Biden. Okay. All right. Thank you so much Thank for your you. time. Appreciate Great it. to see you. Thanks I appreciate all of it. Of Thank course. you. Thank you. Okay, guys. So you see there Nikki Haley trying to thread the needle on a lot of issues related to Donald Trump. And Greg, probably the thing that we heard the most, the theme we heard the most about Trump is that he is a chaos candidate. But Haley still says she would support him. Well, she didn't say she would support him, but she still says she has more concerns about Trump than than Biden. Uh, more concerns about Biden than Trump. I'm sorry. Yes. Excuse me. <laughs> excuse yeah. Me. And, and we've heard that reflected in Republican after Republican after Republican. John King, the insurance commissioner who was on our air just a couple of days ago, who was challenged by a Trump back challenger, said the same thing. Governor Kemp, of course, has said the same thing. It's become sort of the line. Now, Nikki Haley didn't say she'd, she'd endorse Donald Trump, but she but she indicated that she might, but of course she's still fighting on. And Patricia, another thing that really stuck out in this interview is she made no attempt to predict victory in South Carolina this weekend, or nor did she commit to, to, to stay in the race until Georgia's March 12th primary. She did say she hoped to do so, but she was really resolute in her vow to stay in the race after Saturday, no matter what happens. So it looks like she will be definitely fighting on to the Michigan uh, primary on Tuesday, to the Super Tuesday primaries on March 5th. But also, you know, how often have we seen a candidate go and have press conferences and go on these media interviews saying they were not dropping out of the race? That, that of course, is a horrible sign for a candidate if you're mm-hmm. having to do all this to go these extraordinary links saying you're mm-hmm. staying in a race. Yeah, well, guys, there. I mean, they're just realities for campaigns, especially Bill. And you know this, having covered Super Tuesday so many times, you get to Super Tuesday and that goes from being a retail campaign to a money campaign you've got to flood the airwaves and social media with expensive expensive ads and that's what Haley's going to deal with yeah you're not walking into a a breakfast joint and shaking hands with everybody as you would in in new hampshire south carolina even um so it does become broad-based but but patricia first of all i want to congratulate you because i thought you got some really interesting answers Mm -hmm. out of her especially i was impressed with her your way of getting her to talk about fonnie willis Mm. um so congratulations on that um Haley's got money, though, Patricia. People are contributing to, uh, uh, continuing to contribute to her campaign. We mentioned yesterday on the show, Politico had an article which talked about thousands of people who gave money to 
President Biden in 2020, now contributing to Nikki Haley's campaign. About, I think, any great number of them had given Biden hundreds of thousands of dollars, and we're now giving it to Nikki Haley. So she has the fuel for a Super Tuesday, it looks like. It may all dry up after South Carolina and Michigan. Yeah, so interesting. I was really interested, Tia, that she did weigh in on Fonnie Willis Mm -hmm. because she has, again, trying to thread this needle, saying that these cases should go forward, but also that she would pardon Donald Trump if he's convicted on any federal cases. And then asked about Fonnie Willis, she said, well, I... She needs to come off the case so that the case can go forward. Yeah, it's that part about pardoning Donald Trump and, again, indicating that she would support him over Biden at at nothing else. To me, that's one of the reasons why Nikki Haley is in the position she's in right now. Because if, on one hand, she's running as a Trump alternative and saying, let's move on. This guy is not fit. This guy is leading us in the wrong direction. And but at the same time, she's saying, but I would still pardon him. And if it came down to him and Joe Biden, I you know, she's not saying she would support him, but she's not saying she wouldn't. So if you're a voter, what message are you getting from Nikki Haley? Is the guy bad or is he not? Is he a criminal or is he not? Um and and I, I understand that it's a tough position for any Republican who wants to be president to be put in because the alternative is turning away from him completely. And Chris Christie showed us what that looks like. Um, but it's just so interesting to hear him, I mean, hear her kind of try to thread that needle, try to both denounce Trump and criticize him, but also have his back in subtle ways. And to me, that's, again, I'm not saying there's an alternative winning formula, but the polls and everything that we've seen is indicating her approach isn't a winning formula either. Yeah, Greg, it's so interesting because probably the one Republican in America, maybe there there might be a handful of other ones, but who has figured out this formula of how to go up against Donald Trump and still continue to hold on to those voters um, who are Donald Trump supporters really is Brian Kemp. The difference between Kemp and Nikki Haley is that Brian Kemp was not running against Donald Trump. And that's where Haley is running into trouble. You're exactly right. And, it, and this, I think the, the fascinating part about this part of the interview is that it does reflect that needle that she's trying to thread that Tia was just talking about. Because look, Republicans Poll after poll after poll shows these prosecutions are very unpopular with Republicans. So if you're Nikki Haley, you can't go out and condemn, you can't go out and support the trials, but you can say the chaos it leads to, that Donald Trump could be spending more time on the, you know, in, in court than he could on the campaign trail or worrying about the American people. Um, but in this, in this instance, she went further than I've ever heard her say before in criticizing the prosecution. And we haven't seen that, and you mentioned Governor Kemp, we, we haven't really seen that from Governor Kemp either. We haven't heard Governor Kemp say that, that uh, you know, she, he said she's disturbed by some of the allegations, but he hasn't called for uh, the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, to be off the case. I want to pick up on something you just said that I think is so correct, Patricia. The difference between Brian Kemp and Nikki Haley is that Brian Kemp didn't have to run against Donald Trump. And so in his campaign for governor, Brian Kemp very wisely decided not to go after 
Trump, to attack him when he was being attacked by Trump repeatedly. He was able to do that. Um, and of course, it was only after he was reelected that he began criticizing uh, Trump um, in, in, in pretty uh, open ways. But here's the other thing that I, that I think is a great um, similarity between Nikki Haley and Brian Kemp. When you hear them talk, you often think they are moderate Republicans. That's not the case. <laughs> they are both very conservative. Nikki Haley certainly is very conservative. Some of the things she had to say uh, yesterday uh, um, were examples of that. But I think that's one of the similarities between them. They can appeal to moderates, even though they're very conservative. And I want to make one more point about, because uh, it's right, you know, Brian Kemp has been able to stay successful, stay popular despite being perceived as standing up to Trump in certain ways, but that's because he has not directly taken Trump on. And so I think there's a um, a calculus that in two years, if Brian Kemp's on the ballot, whether he's running for Senate or whatever, that, you know, he can parlay that because at that point, Trump won't be necessarily directly against him. However, I think we need to remember that even if Brian Kemp is not running directly against Trump, it's very likely he will be running against a Trump type person, an America first, very far right, ultra conservative MAGA Republican is likely to primary Kemp, just like we saw two years ago. Now, Kemp beat the the Trump endorsed candidate. But what if it's a Marjorie Taylor Greene type of person this time who this time is part of their campaign is built on the fact that Governor Kemp openly went up against Donald Trump. And so to me, in two years, Trump may still be on the ballot and Brian Kemp may be forced in a primary to have to account for the ways some Republicans consider him not MAGA enough. And, 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 and again, he, he was able to withstand that in 2022 when he ran for his second term. It'll be interesting um, which direction the party goes over the next two years. But everything we've seen is that the party is becoming more Trumpy, not less. Yeah, well, Greg, one way that Kemp is continuing not to go up directly against Trump is that he has not endorsed Nikki Haley, who mm-hmm. has was in Georgia in 2022 campaigning with Brian Kemp multiple times. I was with both of them at the varsity when they were both ordering chili dogs and campaigning together. And she was here many, many times for Kemp. Um, but she yesterday, you know, yesterday we're like, he has not returned that favor. And he's not alone. She has very few endorsements. And I was struck yesterday in South Carolina, you know, this is the former two-term governor of the state, otherwise very popular. Um, She was introduced by a single state representative. There was no cavalry coming, Greg, for Nikki Haley. And, you know, the room was full, but it probably held 100 people. And you just Mm -hmm. cannot compare that. It's an order of magnitude less than what Donald Trump is getting in his endorsements and his local support at his rallies. You can just feel the difference when you're there in the room. You really can. Most of the big time Republican officials in South Carolina have already endorsed Donald Trump. There's just a handful of Nikki Haley. The same dynamic is in Georgia. Although in Georgia, as you mentioned, 
many of the big name Republicans are still on the sidelines, right? Uh, Nikki Haley has a handful of state lawmakers, a handful of Republican operatives, some big donors in her campaign list that was put out a couple of days ago. Um, but, but no one who would surprise you, right? Uh, Congressman Mike Collins, who's a Trump supporter, basically said on social media, no one on this list would make anyone change their minds about the election on March 12th. Um, with Governor Kemp, I think if DeSantis was still a, a major factor in the race, he probably would have taken DeSantis's, joined DeSantis's uh, team by now, endorsed DeSantis, but that is a moot point because DeSantis got out before, uh, before New Hampshire. Um, and at this point, you know, Kemp has attacked Donald Trump more since 2022, right? He has called him the loser of the first debate. He's criticized his foreign policy stances. He's gone toe to toe with him on issues here and there. He's not out there every day looking for, for a fight, but here and there, he, he definitely has, has thrown some elbows at Donald Trump at the same time, um, as you guys mentioned earlier, he's looking ahead, right? He's looking ahead at ways to not completely alienate the MAGA universe. And just like he did in 2022, right? He, he did not take Trump, Donald Trump on head on because he didn't want to alienate even a single Repo hardcore Trump supporter. And in 2026, if he decides to run, um, there is the specter of a MAGA back challenge. If it's not Marjorie Taylor Greene, it could be someone else. And he's always thinking about that. Yeah, well, he certainly has his race against David Perdue to scare any conservative yeah. challengers mm -hmm. off to say, well, if David Perdue couldn't get more than 24 points, like who who's going to get more than 24 points against Brian Kemp? Um, Bill, getting back to Nikki Haley, I thought it was interesting. She did not completely close the door on a third party run. And I don't know how relevant that is. But it seems like it would have been very easy to say, look, if, if I don't get the nomination, I'm not getting the nomination. I, you know, I move on. Yeah, you, you'd think for, if for no other reason than to say this is your one chance to vote yeah. for me. people. Yeah. You'd better Take do your it now, now. <laughs> because I'm not going to be a third party candidate. I, I want to say one other thing that I'd love your th reaction to because you've seen her in action um, more than once. Um, Nikki Haley is such a polished professional i think she presents herself so well she's so articulate in the way she gets out her message i mean she has her talking points certainly but um she's a very impressive politician it's understandable that even as an underdog she was able to win the governorship of south carolina and i think under other circumstances if not for a donald trump um her savvy and ability to present herself as she does would take her a lot further than, unfortunately, for people who support her, it's going to now probably. You know, that's definitely my feeling. But going around the country and talking to Trump voters in particular, it's just hard to see exactly where the heartbeat is of this Republican mm. Party. Um, it might have two different heartbeats. You talk to Trump supporters, it's hard to imagine them supporting anybody else mm -hmm. ever who's not sort of in that exact same vein as Donald Trump, even a Donald Trump Jr. or something. So I don't I don't know. And I think that we're learning so much about the Republican Party over the course of these um, elections, 2020, 2022, I think was really important here in Georgia. It told us that there is that mainstream um, Republican still uh, very successful piece of the party here. They are open to somebody like Brian Kemp, um, but can simultaneously support Donald Trump. I think the question going forward, Tia, is, you know, what happens with that, with the Trump wing of the party once Donald Trump is not on the scene anymore? Right. And, I, and is I, that the whole party? I, and, and so I 
I think that's exactly right. And I think the question is, what is the ultimate goal of those who are in that Donald Trump America first wing? And right now it looks like their goal is very Christian nationalist. It's the culture wars. It's anti-immigration. It's isolationist as far as international policy. Um, And so I think they are going to continue to look for candidates who help uh, get that agenda accomplished, which is one of the reasons why Donald Trump became so popular, because he was very helpful in facilitating that Christian nationalist agenda um, and that isolationist agenda um, and that the culture wars, if you will. To, to me, everything I've seen from the Republican Party indicates that's the direction. Now, the good thing for the Nikki Haley's and the Brian Kemp's of the world is they're in, going in that direction, too. Um, but how far, what way, um, to me, that's what's going to be interesting over the next couple of years. Okay. Well, we have a lot of race left to run here in 2024, starting with South Carolina's GOP primary on Saturday. And uh, later in the show, we are going to make sure to bring in second Congressional District Congressman Sanford Bishop. Before we do, and before we hit our break, I want to also let y'all know on tomorrow's show, we're going to welcome South Carolina Congressman Jim Clyburn and South Carolina native and our editor-in-chief, Leroy Chapman. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the AJC. I'm Patricia Murphy, along with Bill Nygut, Tia Mitchell, and Greg Bluestein from South Carolina. Well, we've got a great offer for Politically Georgia listeners. And listen close, because this is the South's best deal. For a limited time, subscribe and you'll get digital access to the AJC for $1.99 per week for life. As long as you keep your subscription, that's our sports, politics coverage, breaking news and in-depth investigations, food and dining, and more from the AJC for the rest of your life. You'll also unlock access to our app, exclusive films and events, and newsletters. Subscribe now by going to AJC.com slash start. That's AJC.com slash start. It's a great deal for a greater Atlanta. This is for new subscribers only. And we want to welcome to the show now Georgia Democratic Congressman Sanford Bishop, the longest serving member of the Georgia delegation who has held that second district seat in middle and southwest Georgia for more than three decades. Congressman, welcome to Politically Georgia. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm glad to be here and I'm uh, wishing you a great morning. It's been an interesting conversation listening. Well, thank you so much. And we are going to bring in Tia Mitchell here because we know that she's been covering you very consistently up on Capitol Hill. So Tia, why don't you get our conversation started? Good morning, Representative Bishop. Good morning, uh, Tia. How are you today? I'm doing great. So let's start since we were talking a lot about the 2024 election. And um, number one, you've been in Congress over 30 years, Representative Bishop. You had a 
um, a, a close election after the seat was redrawn in a way that made it more of a toss up in 2022. Um, but you won and won pretty handily. Um, I just want to confirm, make sure you're not making any news. Are you on the ballot for another term in 2024? After after next week, I will, when qualifying opens. And do you expect that Republicans are going to continue to come for you when it comes to that seat down in southwest Georgia? Well, I would be surprised if they uh, did not. Uh, I think every election that I've had over the past uh, 32 years, uh, except for one, I have had opposition, uh, Republican opposition. Uh, so I, I do expect that uh, to be the case, uh, especially in this environment. Uh, but uh, the job doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the people of the 2nd Congressional District. And I do my best to uh, uh, give good account for my stewardship. And so far, they have uh, given me uh, their approval. So before I bring in my other colleagues, I wanted to ask you one more question. And last week, House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries was down in Columbus with you. He spoke at a Black History Month um, breakfast. And tell me, House Democrats right now are in the minority, but it's a very close, um, very close. The Republicans have a very slim majority we talk a lot about the chaos of this year under that slim Republican majority. There's a government shutdown deadline coming next week. How is it? Is it likely there will be a partial government shutdown after March 1st? Uh, I am certainly hopeful that there will not be. Uh, so far, we have been able to avoid uh, a shutdown. Uh, the most important function that we have in Congress is to be able to fund the government. And we must, uh, with all effort, uh, make sure that uh, we continue to do so. Uh, there is a deadline March 1st for several of the appropriations bills, uh, the Milcon VA, the agriculture, the energy and water, and the transportation HUD bills, which are uh, four of the uh, uh, 12 appropriations bills. Uh, then uh, on March 8th, uh, there's a deadline because the continuing resolution uh, for those bills uh, will expire. Uh, this is a bifurcated uh, continuing resolution which the Republicans have, have instituted this year, which is uh, highly unusual, but uh, they've done it. Uh, and we just cannot afford to have the government shut down. Uh, Americans expect services from uh, our government. Uh, veterans, uh, seniors uh, depend upon uh, their uh, benefit checks. And, of course, it, it, it will just be a disaster. So how do you avoid it? Well, we've got to continue to work uh, as the uh, uh, senior appropriators and uh, the leaders of both parties uh, and the administration are doing day and night uh, to try to uh, bridge the divide uh, and find uh, middle ground. Uh, the only way that it can be done, of course, is to find a bipartisan way forward. Uh, we thought that we had accomplished that last Congress when we uh, passed the Fiscal Responsibility Act uh, in connection with uh, extending the debt ceiling. Uh, we thought that the ground had been laid so that we could have a smooth process. 
both uh, Republicans and Democrats uh, and the administration agreed. Uh, that bill was signed into law with the uh, outlines for the next fiscal year. Uh, however, uh, a handful of, uh, of MAGA extreme Republicans on the right uh, threw a monkey wrench in that, uh, which led, as you know, to the uh, ouster of Speaker McCarthy and the difficulty in uh, replacing him on the Republican side. There seems to be a civil war uh, within the Republican conference, uh, which has created chaos and dysfunction and has inhibited and prohibited uh, the House of Representatives from carrying out our constitutional responsibilities, the main one of which is to fund the government. Congressman, it's Bill Nygut. Um, there, there, you're one of the members who can really comment on the trajectory, the history since the early 90s of what's happened to the House of Representatives. I think when you were first elected, the Speaker of the House was Tom Foley, a Democrat who was willing to work in a bipartisan way across the aisle. Uh, by 96, uh, with the Republican wave in that election year, Newt Gingrich became speaker. And in the year since then, you've watched a succession of speakers, Nancy Pelosi, then Republicans. How, how has, over all of those years, what has brought us to this point today where there is such chaos in the House of Representatives? And to what extent do you feel it's still a productive place to work? Well, uh, the majority of the members of Congress on both sides of the aisle, I believe, uh, uh, want to do the right thing for the country and for their constituents. Uh, but there are extremes on both sides, uh, but particularly on the right side, uh, that have the opinion that if we can't have it our way, we have to shut it down. And uh Rules have been put in place uh, by the uh, Republican uh, conference uh, that have empowered a small handful of individuals uh, to be able to do just that, to shut it down. Um, they have a, a, a rule on the Republican side that uh, they don't want to bring a bill to the floor unless it will have a majority of Republican votes. Uh, they have negotiated uh, in the selection of Speaker McCarthy at the beginning of uh, the 118th Congress so that uh, one member of that conference can call for a, a motion to vacate the chair, which is uh, uh, a vote uh, to take down the Speaker. Uh, and, of course, uh, they insisted that they have uh, some of their small minority uh, MAGA right-wing extremists on the main committees, the Rules Committee, uh, the Appropriations Committee, uh, the Ways and Means Committee, uh, in order to make sure that uh, they can uh, implement uh, extreme uh, Republican uh, policies. And, of course, uh, those... Uh, policies uh, are not uh, broadly accepted, not even on the Republican side, but it has brought the work of the House of Representatives really to a halt. It's been a, a real clog in the wheel that has stopped us from being able to, to maintain the progress 
for the American people that uh, was so strong in the 117th Congress uh, when Democrats were able to uh, be in charge of the House. Uh, during those times, coming right off of the pandemic, uh, we were able to do major legislation uh, with a, a small majority, uh, uh, about the same uh, size as the majority that the current Republicans have. But uh, Democrats were able to coalesce uh, to uh, uh, really come together around the common core issues uh, that were needed for the American people and to uh, bring the country out of the pandemic. You know, we, we passed the American Rescue Plan, uh, which put shots in arms and uh, food boxes, uh, put allowed uh, schools to open again. Uh, we were able to help uh, businesses stay open with the Paycheck Protection Plan, and all of the things that were able to save uh, uh, our economy and to bring it back. Uh, we passed the Infrastructure Bill and Jobs mm -hmm. Act, uh, which really was a tremendous investment uh, uh, all across the country, uh, in every region of the country, and for every demographic of the country. We passed the Chips and Science Act to try to uh, increase our, our uh, supply chain uh, efforts. Uh, and to uh, make us not dependent on on foreign powers uh, and foreign uh, manufacturers for the essential uh, things for our economy, particularly computer chips. Uh, so, and, of course, we were able to pass the Public Safety Act. Uh, so, to, Congressman, for, for on, on all those it. notes, I hate to interrupt, but on all those notes, I, we're, we're talking about, um, we want to shift to 2024. And as Democrats are expecting Georgia to be another pivotal battleground, with all these this list of, of Democratic priorities, do you worry that the state will still be a top target, or do you think it could slip behind others like Pennsylvania or Michigan on the party's priority list? Will Georgia still be a top-tier target in 2024? Georgia, Georgia has to be a top-tier target because uh, we are all uh, watching the polling numbers, uh, we understand that uh, while Georgia performed very well uh, two years ago, there have been changes in the election laws uh, in terms of uh, voting. Uh, and uh, there's ever bit uh, a stronger uh, element on the uh, far right side. And so uh, we cannot take Georgia for granted. I think the party recognizes that. And I believe that there will be uh, strong investments uh, in Georgia to make sure that we're able to uh, take back the House, maintain the Senate, and, of course, maintain the, the White House. And, Congressman, uh, one more question about 2024. We have seen just a parade of senior members of Congress uh, deciding to retire this session. Most of them are, many of them are Republicans. Um, some are Democrats. Uh, many saying they're just so exasperated at the pace of work, the pace of progress. They just are looking for other ways to spend their time. Tell us, give us some insight about your thinking. You've been up there many, many years. Um, you, of course, have a key spot on the Appropriations Committee. Tell us about your thinking to stay in Congress and continue to serve and continue to run. Well, I think that uh, there is so much at stake uh, at this moment in our history. Uh, our democracy is at stake. Uh, freedoms are at stake. Uh, women's reproductive rights are at stake. Uh, and we just cannot walk away uh, from uh, the fight 
to maintain our, 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 our institutions. Uh, I see attacks on our very institutions, on our Constitution, uh, and I just cannot, uh, cannot walk away. But there are a number of, uh, of members who have uh, served for a long time and who are very exacerbated, as you say, and, and disappointed with their colleagues, particularly on the other side of the aisle. Uh, they're saying that they just cannot continue to try to work with uh, folks that are supposed to be on their team and on the team for the betterment of America uh, with some of the uh, policies that they seem to be trying to impose and seem to be uh, having an iron grip uh, on their Republican caucus, uh, which has really um, uh, caused chaos, dysfunction uh, in the House of Representatives and inhibited uh, the ability to get the job done. And that is just uh, very frustrating. I hear it uh, from them on the elevator, in the hallways. Uh, they look over their shoulder uh, to see that nobody on their side is listening, and they say, oh, I just don't understand it. I just don't understand these folks. Uh, they just don't seem to get it. All and right. Of course, oh. uh, Oh, I'm sorry, Congressman, um, we are going to uh, have to hop off to our next break. We want to thank you so much for spending time with us today on Politically Georgia and ask you to please join us again soon because we have a lot more left to talk about. Thank you so much, and uh, I'm delighted to be with you, and we'll be happy to come back anytime you offer. All right. Well, thank you, sir. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Patricia Murphy, along with Bill Nygut, Tia Mitchell, and Greg Bluestein, who is calling in from South Carolina. Well, twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all of the important news, scoops, and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com slash newsletters. Well, we want to welcome to the show now Marcus Flowers, who ran to unseat Marjorie Taylor Greene in the 14th Congressional District in 2022 and is now mounting a Democratic primary campaign against Congressman David Scott in the 13th Congressional District. Um, Mr. Flowers, thanks for joining us. Well, good morning. Thank you guys for having me. Of course. Well, tell us quickly about your decision to jump into this race, because it's very, very different from the race that you just ran against Marjorie Taylor Greene. Talk about running against an incumbent Democrat instead. Well, let me approach that question this way, Patricia. You know, I think in this economy, we've all realized that it's changed and workers have had to learn new skills and adapt to keep up. We should expect the same thing to be true for our elected officials. Um, now, just a little bit about me and why I ran in 2020 against Marjorie, or 2022 cycle against Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know, I recognized, you know, in the summer of 2020 after George Floyd died and watching her, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene rise to power and, you know, 
be a very vocal voice in the insurrection in January that happened on January 6th. You know, I realized we were in a different place. We were in a different world. And having served this country on four different continents in my time in the military as a defense contractor and a government official with the Department of Defense, you know, I see that democracy has been on the ballot and will be on the ballot again. And I don't see a lot of our elected officials, Democrats in particular here in Georgia, as well as across the the country, sounding that alarm right now. Uh, I, I see I see this as you know a fight that's on a new front, and we need to be getting out and letting you know the voters in the district know just how important democracy is to all of the other issues that we're facing uh, in our lives in our day to day lives. Uh, I'm sounding that alarm. Uh, because I don't see a lot of people doing that to the extent that I think it needs to be done in educating our people on what those dangers really are and defining that fight going forward and the future fights that will come. I mean, because the warning lights have been going off for a while now, and I'm trying to sound that alarm, you know, in this battle against uh, authoritarianism versus democracy. And, you know, the progress that we've made so far, I don't want to see that stifled. You know, and also I think it's important that we start connecting um, foreign policy to our national security and talking about, you know, cyber threats and those foreign and state actors who are heck bent on, you know, <laughs> destroying America and seeing us fall. We are here with Marcus Flowers, who just announced a campaign for the 13th Congressional District, the newly drawn con Congressional District on the east side of Atlanta against incumbent David Scott. Uh, Marcus, you raised and spent more than $16 million and still lost in a blowout to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, now that you're turning your sights to a fellow Democrat, what do you say to your critics within your own party who say that you're just looking for the next race to run? Well, you know, I... I hear a lot about how much we raised in 22 and yes, 16 million is a lot, but what people don't talk about is where that money went and what I did with it. You know, what they don't talk about is the help that we provided for Senator Warnock, uh, in Georgia's 14th by getting, you know, the most Democrats in the history of that district to show up, come out and vote. You know, yes, we all knew it was an uphill battle, but people came out anyway, and we played a large part in that. And we played a large part in Senator Warnock's reelection uh, with, you know, paid staff and paid canvassers and office space and contributions that we donated to his runoff. Uh, we also did that with, you know, local committees uh, here in, in Georgia, you know, sometimes to the tune of multiple factors of what they'd raised in years. Um, you know, we've also done a lot of work with, state and local Dems, uh, getting them elected because we need to take back or take the House and the Senate in Georgia in order to get things done for the people of America. So I don't hear a lot of people talking about what that money was actually used for. But again, this is about a fight for our democracy, a fight for reproductive health for women, uh, women's rights, for our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, for you know workers in Georgia, for health care. You know, there, there's a lot of things that go in this fight that we just I'm not hearing a whole lot of people talking about and raising those alarms and those issues with voters, because what I'm hearing now is the discontent with the Biden administration and, you know, people thinking about sitting this one out because they don't like the choices. 
I'm going to get out and talk about those things. And I think people need to understand that we need to get, we need to get voters out to the polls, reelect Kamala Harris and Joe Biden and save our democracy. Marcus, I really appreciate you joining us for the conversation this morning. I, um, so many questions. Number one, why the 13th district? You talked about uh, wanting to save democracy and help Democrats. Why is the 13th district where you decided to run? Well, one of the things that people don't know about me, they know that I live in Northwest Georgia now, but actually I'm from the 13th district. When I first moved to Georgia back in 2008, 2009, Henry County was my home. You know, I only left Henry County because, you know, DOD sent me out west for, you know, a four or five year tour out west. So when I came back to Georgia, I moved back where I could, where, you know, my family is now. But Henry County's home to me. Uh, it's where my family lives, my mother and my brother and my sisters. You know, so it's home. Um, and it's where I will move back to if elected to that district. So I do have a strong connection to the 13th Congressional District. But all of the things that I said before still apply. They apply all over Georgia. I mean, we need representatives who are going to be built for the fight that's now and the fight that's in the future to save our democracy, to save our jobs, to save our health care, you know, voting rights, everything that we stand for. We need a representative who's going to stand up and push back and get out in the community and get engaged with them in meaningful ways to let people know just what's at stake. Uh, Mr. Scott, this is uh, Bill Nygut, and and we've flowers. never met. So I, <laughs> I mean, flowers. <laughs> I, <laughs> I was thinking about the man you're going to run against, David Scott, and that's what I wanted to talk to you about. You've talked in very broad terms about your feeling that not enough Democrats are defending the need to save our democracy. I'm not sure I'd agree with that. It strikes me that from President Biden on down, many Democrats have said that they believe Donald Trump is a threat to democracy but but fine i'll i'll accept your uh contention there i I get i get that but but there's more specific questions i would turn to what has david scott not done when he's serving in the current district um that you feel you'll be able to provide um in the new 13th district where where do you fault him as an incumbent member of the u.s house Again, it goes back to what I was saying before. We're not seeing our members of Congress out robustly pushing back on extremism. I'm not seeing that here in Georgia. And to push back on uh, the disagreement, I have these conversations with friends and family members in the 13th. And the things that I hear, they're not hearing all of that pushback. So it's not filtering down to that local level. A lot of people have just tuned out and they say, oh, well, you know, you know, I watched a uh, uh, a documentary, uh, Black Men in America, uh, that was on MSNBC. And I listened to some of those conversations uh, that uh, the one rapper, um, Young Jeezy, was saying, you know, Trump's the devil we know uh, versus, you know, the devil that we don't know. I hear very similar sentiments in the district. They're just not getting that information. You have to get out and pound the pavements and talk to the people about these things, about these dangers, and explain to them in terms that they can understand and that they'll relate to 
about those dangers. So I have to push back and say, I'm really, I, I get what you're saying. I'm seeing that we're probably, probably sitting in the same, uh, you know, news cycles and wa watching that. But a lot of people aren't tuning into that. A lot of people are dealing with day-to-day -day life um, and they're just not tuned in right now. And that's where, where you get the, uh, the disconnect there. Uh, there was also, if you, if you th look at back at Twitter, there was a, another rapper named Plies who was talking about, and this is the tweet that went viral, where he was talking about Joe Biden and Kamala Harris need to get out and brag about the things that they've done. And there is a lot to brag about. We need to be out in our communities bragging about what this administration has done when it comes to infrastructure, the CHIPS Act, uh, the work that they're doing to heck, just uh, um, relieved another, what is it, $1.5 in student loan debt or forgave that. Uh, you know, people need to be hearing that. They're not all in, in the news cycles like, you know, those of us who are more insider baseball are. So I want to get out and have those conversations, get out on the doors and talk to people. That's one of the things that I did in the, the 14th. I got out and knocked thousands of doors and had those conversations with people. And you'd be surprised at just how much they're not really tuned into those things. Okay. Well, um, Marcus Flowers, we want to thank you so much for joining Politically Georgia today. We want to make sure that we ask you to come back in the future as this race starts to really um, get closer. We'd love to have you back on. Well, thank you for having me. I'd love to come back. Thanks so much. All right. Well, if you have a question you'd like to ask us here on Politically Georgia, you can call our call-in hotline anytime. Leave a question and we'll play it back and answer it right here on the show during our Friday listener mailbag segment. That number is 404-526-2527. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app. If you like what you hear, leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.